Welcome to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. Alrighty, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. And firstly, Happy New Year. This episode number 321. I've been a little bit slack. I've had a hiatus. But the reason being, I think I've saved it to getting the ultimate guest to kick off 2024. Julie Rickard, welcome to the show. Wow, Dale, that is certainly the intro. (laughs) And I appreciate your enthusiasm and generosity for having me as a guest today. Thank you so much. That's right. Now, before we start, I should ask this before, do you like Julie or Jules? I always think it's important to know what people like to be called. Um, well, most of my friends call me Jules, so and I appreciate that, but Julie or Jules, happy to go with either. Well, I reckon we're going to be friends after this, Jules, so I'm going to roll the Jules, and uh, where I'm at, I find it a lot easier to say less letters and more. So before we get into your story and everything you're doing, if you could think back to the last seven days, what's one thing that's lit you up, that's brought you a heap of joy? Well, I lived with a Queenslander for 15 years, and he has indoctrinated me into the ways of rugby league. Oh. So I am pumped about all the preseason news for my beloved Melbourne Storm, and I'm counting down the days until the season opener. Oh, well, I love that. It's still uh, it's still a fair way away, but uh, I must admit it's getting closer. And uh, for people that uh, I'm an AFL man as well. So very exciting when the winter sports are coming around. I love that. Now, Jules, let's uh, get straight into it today. And before we do, I just want to mention straight off the bat to people that we're going to be talking about suicide, about mental health, about, you know, pretty, pretty deep topics. Uh, so if you're not in the best space at the moment and you don't think you're in a space to be able to listen to something like this, probably come back at a different stage and reach out to somebody and even though we are going to talk about your story Jules and then things that you can do to improve all areas of your life um, I just sort of give people a heads up so Jules you will be able to do this a lot better than me but uh, you, you've got a new partner now and uh, he's a mutual friend of mine and yours and uh, I'll reach out to Podgy um, life's very good for you now but you've had a pretty tough you know 15 years or so to get where you are at the moment. Do you want to talk about your story and particularly like how, what happened on the night of, or the night of September 19, 2011? Absolutely. As I just mentioned, I did have the privilege and the honor of living with a Queenslander for 15 years. And that was my best friend and soulmate, Steve. We, um, you know, classic, classic Aussie story. We met at a pub and I just knew (laughs) straight away that this was the man I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And we had 15 amazing years. And unfortunately, uh, Steve had an accident at work and he suffered quite a debilitating back injury that impacted his spinal cord. He uh, wasn't paralyzed as such, but he did have limited mobility chronic pain he couldn't drive he couldn't work so he was really isolated and and really quite lost in the world and unfortunately um on the night or the morning of September 19th um in 2011 he suicided and I say it was a shock but not a surprise um he had been struggling for a while with the chronic pain and the isolation and would frequently say to me, you know, I'm such a burden. You'd be better off without me. And, 
you know, all those classic lines that you hear and and um, I'll get to later on what I do now for a job, but I wish I knew then what I know now. I'll just leave it at that. And he went downhill really quickly and I, I did what, you know, our natural instinct is, which is rang an ambulance and got him to the hospital. And unfortunately, after a good five, six hours in the waiting room with him visibly distressed and, and, and quite agitated, we had a brief um, assessment and he was sent home. And two days later, he died. And oh, I can wow. almost pinpoint the moment when the light went out for him. It was like he he desperately wanted help, but I did the best I could at the time with what I had and we just couldn't get the help we wanted. So it was um, a horrific time. I was 38 at the time. So out of my peer group, I was the first one that had lost a partner. It was really foreign to me. And suicide bereavement is, it's a strange beast. It's, it's really complicated. There's a lot of really conflicting emotions. There's anger there's questions, there's, you know, in some cases people feel relief, particularly if there's been years of struggle. Um, you know, there's there's the guilt. I could have done more. Could I have prevented this? There's, it's really complicated. So that in itself is a really isolating experience. And it, um, it was like a bomb going off in my world. And, you know, suicide, I'll, I'll say the word a lot today because there's so much stigma and taboo around suicide. And I truly believe that every time we say that word out, li out loud, and I really want to thank you for being brave and having me on your show because nobody wants to talk about it. It's not glamorous. It's frightening. And it really challenges our ideas of being a human. And for somebody to make that choice to end their own life, it really challenges our mortality and our beliefs and our values. So I found I couldn't really talk to people. And it was, it was such a it was such an isolating time. And it was, it was, I I remember very early on that I was determined that I wanted to work towards a world where other people didn't have to go through what I went through. So Really early on, I started volunteering and advocating in the suicide prevention space. And I was really um, privileged that when they launched the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system, I was invited to the press conference at the launch with the commissioners and the Premier to be the voice of lived experience, to tell my story to really set the scene for that that long process that was the Royal Commission. and it was probably at that exact moment that I learned the power of my story because up until that point, I just thought, this is my life. You know, this is what's happened to me. I'll just soldier on. But I had so much feedback and so many people that sought me out to speak to me and tell me their own stories that they hadn't felt they were able to say out loud to other people before. And that was the moment that I really, I learned the power of lived experience and, and hearing other people speak publicly and openly about things such as suicide which is not like I said it's not glamorous it's not you know nobody wants to talk about it it's uncomfortable it makes us feel really uncomfortable and nervous and awkward and scared there's a lot of fear around suicide so that's sort of my history in a nutshell 
Well, I, yeah, there's a lot of things I want to unpack there. And first of all, I want to talk about the courage that it must have taken because at 38, I am 38 right now, and I couldn't imagine going through that myself, Jules. Like, I, I, I really couldn't. Um, so the courage to actually get on with your life and get out with it, but more importantly, courage to share your story um, because I, I can't imagine that's very easy. And I want to come back to that, but also the reason I am really passionate about this as well, that um, when my father was 12, his dad committed suicide, and I've seen the impact of that through generations and it's impacted me, my relationship with my dad and um, all these different things that people don't realize. And at that time, and particularly even at your time, it wasn't, wasn't something we speak about. We still don't speak about it. Now we talk so much on the news about so many other things, but suicide's not one of them. So like you said, yes, any conversation around, it's a good conversation. Um, but I'm really, I'm really more inclined to hear how you, how did you, go from being at 38, like lost and, you know, nobody else going through this or to turn it into a positive, positive and, you know, obviously speak of the Royal Commission and things like that. I'm guessing that wasn't a small process and it took a while, but where did that courage come from, Jules? Absolutely. Um, I'm really fortunate that I have the most amazing, strong parents that have raised me to just really believe in myself and believe in my voice. And they have stood behind me every step of the way and encouraged me and just unwavering support. So I think that upbringing really played a huge part. The other thing was, um, as I said, Steve had quite um, debilitating physical health issues. We didn't go out much because he um, he walked with a walking stick. So any venue that had stairs were a real challenge for him. If he couldn't sit down, it would be really challenging. Even long car rides were really painful for him. So without realising it, over the sort of two, three years prior to his death, we'd really isolated our lives to just the two of us. And I remember sitting there the day after he died thinking, I don't ever want to be on my own again without a support network like I realized I'd sort of left everything behind I I sort of moved away from friends because you know it was too hard to go out I was Steve's carer um for like I said those years leading up to his death so working full-time looking after him running a household all the other stuff fell by the wayside so I was really determined then to build up my own support network so I just started going out and someone said to me really early on you know a lot of people are going to invite you places and in those early days particularly always say yes never say no and if it gets to the actual day and you really honestly can't do it then that's okay you can cancel last minute but always in your mind anticipate that you will be going to these social events because people will get sick of asking and that will fall away so I did, I forced myself to go out to karaoke nights and dinners and all these weird things. And then I started making friends of friends and reconnecting with old friends. And I built this amazing support network around myself so that if the worst ever happened again, I knew I'd never be alone. And I was really, it's funny to think back at it now, it feels like another time and another person, but I was actually really quite decisive in my, you know, movements, decisions, actions at that time. It sort of came out of nowhere. I think that when the chips are really down, sometimes you just rise to the occasion 
it just happens. It's it's the most freakiest thing. But yeah, so um I just I just picked myself up and went, oh, oh first of all, I said this will not define me and this will not end my life. It's bad enough that it ended Steve's life. It will not end my life and it will not I will not forever be the girl whose partner suicided. Yeah. So um wow. I don't know, just I just drew on this internal strength, which I never knew I had, quite honestly. Isn't that like, and listening to what you're saying, like without even knowing it, you'd isolated from things that we crave in the world, which is connection and, and belonging. And, and particularly like what you're saying with Steve, that when you don't have a purpose, you know, all other ambition and that drive and passion and zest for life sort of goes. But what you were saying is because of his situation, the things that you actually needed as a human Probably so hard to find, but you were doing it. You, you isolated yourself and then you had to, like, it was already bad enough. You went through suicide, but then you had to reemerge into the world. Wow. Yeah. Just, like, it's crazy, Jules. And we all know how hard it is to make friends when you're an adult. But yeah. I, I just went out there and went, I need this. I know I need this for my own health and well being. So there were there were nights I had to pep talk myself so hard to leave the house. I always felt glad that I'd done it. And then it's like anything, the more you do it, the easier it gets. Mm. And it was um and I and then that came with its own sort of dilemmas as well. Like when I meet new people, do I tell them what what has happened to me? You know, again, I didn't want to be defined by it. So there was that whole sort of tightrope to walk as well. And it was, for me, it was always very much a case by case basis. I always trust my gut and just go with, you know, what, what the situation needs. But yeah, when I went on, um, I was on every six o'clock news when I launched the Royal Commission, it, everyone knew then. So yeah, I bet that's did. What it was taken out of my hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, well done for that. And just as you were talking about that, um, obviously do a lot of work in schools and corporates and things like that. I know you do as well, but one of the big things I'm facing with now is like social anxiety and, you know, and not, not comparing suicide to the pandemic, but people are really, you know, feeling they don't, they're anxious about going out. And so to say, to do what you did um, is sort of similar to that. that. People don't want to do it now, but I love how you just said like the lead up is hard. You tell yourself, you always feel better when you do it. And there's small wins and small wins equal big wins. And it's not easy, Absolutely. you know, but, that, yeah. but it's worth doing. Absolutely. And, and the more you do it, the easier it gets. I think in the end, I, there was only a very small number of things that I'd initially said yes to that on the day I just could not do. Most things I, I actually, I pushed through it and I did it. Yeah. I, I, I love that. And I think the hard thing is people want this magic potion, you know, so that they can overcome it and things, but the reality is it's not nothing worth doing is easy. You know, and then like the, you get the results because you overcome those hurdles and you put yourself in that situation that is challenging, but that's why you rise. Absolutely. That, you know, there's no such thing as good luck. There's hard work mm. and there's persistence and there's, you know, courage, but yeah, most things in life you really do have to work hard for that. That's a, that's a certainty. Well, I take my hat off to you, Jules, because, you know, your story of what you've come through and where you are now, it, it's something you should be proud of, and I'm sure you are. So let's talk more about now 
what you've decided that you want to help other people. And I know you said obviously started by sharing your story, but you've left your corporate world and and now you, you're running free workshops and doing all these things. What, what was the catalyst to make you realize that this was your higher calling or your purpose or whatever you want to call it? Um, when did, when did, when did this change? When did you realize you need to do this? Well, it was really around that time of the Royal Commission when I was getting so many people seek me out and speak to me that I realised, you know, we really do need the voices. And and I, I was reading the other day, um, the Suicide Prevention Australia estimate that 10 million Australians are directly impacted by suicide. That's almost 40% of our population. Wow. So that's a huge volume of lived experience, but not everybody who has been through an event like this is able to talk about it. I'm just one of the for, for, fortunate few that I did the hard work, you know, and it was hard work. I had extensive um, therapy, um, individual and group therapy. I really put the hard yards in so that I would be strong enough to be able to talk about this. And it does take a lot of strength because it was the worst day of my life. But I also see the value in telling my story so that others don't feel alone and others don't feel isolated. And so I did leave my corporate job, which I'd been in for nearly 30 years, which was not fulfilling. It, I felt like I was a cog in a giant wheel making no difference to the world and I had no meaning and purpose. And I know you touched on that before. Two of the biggest factors in suicide, and again, I'll just re, I'll just be really overt with this. There's no one size fits all with suicide. It's really a one size fits one. Everybody's circumstances are different. Suicide doesn't discriminate. It's one person's perspective of the events and their life. And so, I had no meaning and purpose. I certainly did not look forward to going to work every day. And this opportunity came up to work with uh, Life Connect, which is the suicide prevention program in Eastern Melbourne. It's part of NEMI National. And I thought long and hard because I had this good, secure job and it was paying the bills. And, and I thought, but I hate it. <laughs> I, I don't want to go to work every day. And so I bit the bullet and it's honestly been the best thing I could have imagined. Um, we run free suicide awareness workshops, which are amazing. We It's gatekeeper training, so we touch a lot of community organisations, volunteer organisations, community groups. We go into schools and just have these conversations about suicide. And coming from a lived experience, you've walked the walk. So I think that sort of gives you the qualification to talk the talk and the overwhelming feedback we get from our workshops is the lived experience. It just really cements the theory, if you like. Um, but, yeah, and it's just so it's it's actually heal, really healing as well to, to be able to do this work and see the impact it has. Um, and I work in an amazing team who are the fully lived experience team, so we have people in the team that have had suicide attempts, bereaved by suicide, cared for somebody who was suicidal or had suicidal thoughts themselves. So we cover, that's the whole definition of lived experience of suicide. And we have the most amazing connection and conversations. It's it's better therapy than I've ever experienced in my life. It's that connection. 
connection we say at life connect connection is the medicine um human beings we're pack animals way back to neanderthals you could not survive on your own against dinosaurs we needed our pack and that still rings true in 2024 human beings are pack animals we really need our tribe so that connection and that sense of purpose are great protective factors against suicide and um it's finding them which can be really difficult but it's it's worth digging deep and hard to find them yeah and that's it comes back to that community you know having having people that you know you go to or that you can ring and you can be around and um i love that lived experience because you can't go to university and get a degree on suicide if you actually haven't lived it like there's no such thing and you can read all the stats and facts that people you want but um people learn through story people can relate through story and that lived experience is so powerful so i know you said at the start jules that uh you wish you knew what you knew now back then warning signs tipping points um what what were some of the things that you know with steve that really now just alarm bells are ringing for you yeah one of one of the things we say in our workshops is again it's a one size fits one so there's no sort of stereotypical behavior that you will see and how often do you hear somebody say oh there it came from nowhere we we didn't see it coming. So it's really, and this is a this is just good everyday advice, just to have your ears and eyes open and notice those really subtle changes in behavior. In Steve's case, he had been quite um combative for several days. Um, and then I remember on the morning that he died, he was incredibly calm. Just and I thought to myself, oh, we've turned a corner, things are gonna uh... get better now. But now I know that often that sense of calm and peace is because a decision's been made and that person, there's, there is relief in sight. Um, and so they become very calm. But the, the, your natural, because you don't want to think the worst, you'll grab onto those, oh, we've turned a corner. Um, and again, we don't, it's so, it's so awful to think that somebody you love is in such a state of pain that this is their only solution. So you will literally turn a blind eye to even the most obvious of warning signs because you don't want to believe them. So it's just tuning into those subtle changes of behaviour. Some people will will be very, um, you know, loving and telling everybody that they love them, almost like saying their goodbyes. Other people will um, give away their prized possessions and then you might get people that are really happy or you might get people who are really withdrawn and really sad. It's it's so varied, but it, it, the, the key thing is looking for changes in, in um, mannerisms, what they're saying, how they're behaving, and thinking, hang on, something's not quite right here, and I'm a great believer in trusting your gut. So, yeah, for Steve, he became really calm. I was still really worried about him and that is why I rang an ambulance and I've now learned that, you know, we as soon as we hear suicide, our gut instinct is often, right, I need to get to the hospital. I can't deal with this on my own. I, the professionals need to deal with it. Unfortunately, the medical system can do more harm than good and that is unfortunately what happened in my situation. I'm not saying they don't do good. They absolutely do good. And there are circumstances where 
a trip to the hospital is life-saving. But we recommend just waiting before you take that step and really sitting in the pain with somebody, asking them and and asking them directly and very clearly, are they considering suicide? Are they considering taking their lives? You hear um, people saying, oh, you're not going to do something silly, are you? Oh, you're not going to. It's that kind of language is not going to encourage someone to open up. You're already dismissing their choices. You don't, you're not. And by naming it and being very overt and very clear, that can be a real circuit breaker. And it can also be a really real big relief for some people because all of a sudden these thoughts and feelings trapped within them, they can actually have an outlet. And um once how many times have you had something circling around your head for days and days and days as soon as you get those words out of your mouth it's like the the heat goes out of them so having a conversation sitting with somebody really listening non-judgmental just really sitting in the pain with them listening to what they're what's going on for them not trying to fix it you, you can't fix it but just listening I mean, how often in our busy everyday lives do we really sit and listen to another person? We're already thinking about what we're going to say next. <laughs> and I encourage everybody <laughs> to Google active listening and to really take some time and learn about active listening. It's an incredible skill to have in every aspect of your life. What human being doesn't like being seen and heard? Um, you know, we talked about isolation being a big part of those, you know, suicidal feelings. If you don't feel seen or heard, you feel like nobody can help me. But then all of a sudden somebody sits down, sees you, sees that things perhaps aren't right, asks, the, asks some questions and genuinely listens to your responses. That can really, really just ease the pressure of the situation. Letting them know what you've noticed is different, you know, letting them know that you've seen them um, can be a real circuit breaker. And no harm can come from a conversation like that. Asking someone if they're suicidal is not going to make them go, oh, I wasn't, but now I am. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Chances are if they're suicidal, they've been thinking about it. So you can't, these conversations, there is no wrong way to do it. Um, and the more we have these candid and open conversations with our loved ones, not just our loved ones, people we work with, teammates, you know, the easier they get, the more commonplace they become, the less stigma and taboo we're going to have around suicide. If we talk about it like we talk about, oh, one example is the road toll. I often ask people, do more people die on the roads or of suicide? And most suicide. people go the road. The road tolls much higher. That's most people's response. I actually wrote the figures down because it's it's fascinating. In 2022, 1,194 people died on the roads in Australia. 3,249 died of suicide. So that's more than double. Yeah. But because you read, you hear about the road toll on the news, they're talking about it. It's more front of mind to people. So yeah, it's these, it's having these conversations and and really every conversation helps ease that taboo and the stigma. Mm, and it I, I think the big thing with, you know, having that conversation is 
it's not about you. If it makes you feel uncomfortable, you're having the conversation for somebody else. Um, I think it's, you know, it's like exactly what we're saying about you know, Jules and you had to put yourself out there and go again. Like it was hard, but having that hard conversation and realizing that if I'm uncomfortable, it's not about me. That hard question is what they need to hear instead of fluffing around and not actually getting in and making the situation worse. Absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. Sometimes we really have to put ourselves on hold for the greater good. That's yeah. such a good point. Yeah. And just, and also being aware that when major events happen in people's lives, just keeping that extra close eye on them as well. Like some of the major tipping points can be perceived as really positive things, like retirement can be a real trigger for suicide, having a baby. You know how much a baby changes your life. That can Ooh, be a real thing. And for women, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the hormones, um, the hormones around pregnancy and childbirth. I think suicide is one of the leading causes of death in new mothers. Wow. Um, I didn't know and that. And yet we perceive this That's to be crazy. this happy event, but it's really challenging. Retirement. Oh, congratulations, you've retired. Then you've lost your meaning and purpose. A lot of yeah. people their job is so meaningful to them. All of a sudden, what am I going to do with my days? So just being aware that, you know, when these events happen in people's lives, just keeping an eye out for people. And it's interesting. Um, I often talk about how in COVID, the media were all, oh, the suicide rates are going to skyrocket. Suicide rates actually fell because the one thing we did as a society is we connected with each other. We checked in on those friends that were living on their own. We made sure we asked our neighbours if they needed anything. It was really back to that grassroots community and and particularly right at the beginning when the whole country was in lockdown, not just poor old Melbourne. <laughs> it really was that feeling of we're all in this together. And I'm a little bit sad that now things are back to so-called normal. A lot of those tiny little gestures have just fallen by the wayside because sometimes the smallest gesture can have such a big impact on somebody. Um, I'm one of these weirdos that will talk to any random stranger in the street. I like um, it. Because you just, you just don't know what kind of day they're having. They could feel invisible. And if you see them, and I'm, I'm the weird person that always compliments everybody. I love your shoes. Oh, wow, where did you get that bag? If someone's walking their dog, oh, your dog is gorgeous. You know, Someone may be caught up in their own little world of pain and, and that can be the absolute, oh, somebody's seen me. That can really refocus someone's whole day and it's cost me nothing. Mm, so just those tiny them. little gestures uh, it's made are so, so much. It made so much difference to them though, Jules. That's the thing. Like, it, do you know, and I use this quote a lot, it's, it's very easy to do those compliments and reach out to people. It's also very easy not to. You know, yes. and I think that's where people, when they want to do these big outrageous things of gestures of kindness and thing, it doesn't, the littlest things normally have the biggest impact, like you said. And also your motivation. One thing that gets my goat a bit is these people that film the random acts of kindness to put on social media. <laughs> that should not be your motivation. Your motivation should be just to put a smile on someone's face. Yeah. You don't, that's, you don't need to film it. For me. 
Yeah. I, I understand it, but that's the world. I think it's the world we live in. We need to film everything. You know, you look at people Because going to we concerts. want validation. I know. We want that validation from the public. <laughs> the moment you're filming, you're not present. You're not actually in the room. You know, you're on the screen. Yeah. You think your mind's elsewhere thinking about what this recording's going to do for you or what it's going to be seen by or instead of actually enjoying the current situation or the people you're with. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think the world's gone back to, unfortunately, the bad habits we're in before. Um, and that's, you know, COVID, some of the simplest things people are doing, getting up, going for a walk, you know, yep. simple little things, but now we're too busy again. You know, you, life's not busy. We make ourselves busy. And I think you need to look back at the things that COVID allowed you to do that were actually good for you. And um, there were quite a lot. Obviously, there were quite a lot that weren't. Um, I really find that uh, stat around, you know, retirement and new mothers because, both of them have sort of lost their identity in a way, haven't they? Like when you retire, yes. a lot of people identify themselves, Jules, as their job. And as a mother, you're not a, you know, you're a mother now. You know, you it's all about somebody else and not about you. Um, it, I find those two, I wouldn't have thought those two, but it's it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's all the other obvious tipping points like relationship breakdowns, legal problems, financial problems, all the ones you'd expect but I like to highlight those because yeah we often think oh congratulations and celebrations but what's really going on for you and it's really important to support people through those big milestones yeah yeah so true I, I, it's and when you say it and we talk about it it makes sense but too often we think oh they're going to be so excited they can particularly when you retire you can go traveling and do all these things but that's that may not be what they want to do their life, they may every day get up and love going to work and now they physically can't do that. That's really hard. Absolutely. I was at a wedding not long ago and I was talking to a man on the table I was sitting on who I'd never met before and he'd recently retired. And he was telling me prior to his retirement, his GP organised an appointment and sat down with him and said, right, you need to plan for this. We need to think about what how your days are going to look and I thought it was such a beautiful, proactive thing. And I just, I thought, wow, I wish all GPs did that. It should be just standard, you know. Um, so that made my my suicide prevention heart very happy. I bet it did. But it, it's, it's again, like what we're talking about, it's a very simple thing to do, but it's something we don't do. But then when we're in that situation, we're like now, oh, what do I do with my day? I've got all this time. Um, and that preparation is key, I suppose. It's uh I've never heard of that either, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, I think a lot of GPs are that swamped by trying to do 20 clients an hour that, uh, you know, that caring love sort of goes out of it. Absolutely. And it's funny, as soon as, you know, when you meet people for the first time and they ask what you do for a job and I say I work in suicide prevention, it usually opens the doors for the most amazing conversations like that. And I'm so honoured and privileged to be in this position to be able to have those conversations. So, yeah, life's life's good. Well, it is. And, and from where you've come from to get where you are, Jules, it's so refreshing to hear, you know, that you're in a really good place. And not only that, that you've been able to use, as you said, the most horrific day in your life as a positive. And now that's helping people and saving lives, which is, is so amazing. From your journey from, you know, the highs and lows, what are you most proud of? 
do you ever think of that way? Like, what are you really proud of, you know, the work you've been doing, particularly the space that you're in now as a human being, you know, because you are a happy, positive person. Um, it could have been very easy not to be. Absolutely. That's a really, really simple question for me to answer. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I did a lot of hard work, which and part of them included group therapy. Um, and I met an amazing woman when I was in the really early days as part of a, a bereavement group. And she just inspired me. She was about 10 years down the track, living this full, wonderful life. She had a new partner. She was, but yet she was still giving back by facilitating a bereavement group. But she gave me so much hope. And uh, so when I was in a position where I was mentally able to, I was um, I co-facilitate a, a suicide bereavement group and um, I'm now able to provide that hope to others. And, and that is the overwhelming feedback that I get um, is that to hear somebody who has been, you know, down that journey and come out the other side is so helpful for people. And I love my bereavement group because, like I said earlier, suicide bereavement is so isolating. It's so complex. I, I used to joke I felt like the Grim Reaper whenever I, I brought it up in conversation. People don't want to hear this. I always brought the room down. So to be able to provide a dedicated space where people could come once a month and say all those things that they can't say anywhere else it's enormously beneficial. It's such a relief. You're with people that understand because they're walking the same path as you. And I, yeah, I, that I'm most proud of, of my bereavement group. It's, it's amazing. And it, it fills my cup and it makes my heart sing with joy to see those people every month who have been through again, as an awful situation, but they're putting the work in and, and they're going to make their lives better. Yeah. And I think that just, you know, when I see people putting the work in like I did and I think, yeah, you've got it. You'll yeah. be fine. No, it's, and it's amazing. I love that. And I, I guess the one thing you're really providing is you're giving people hope because I'm guessing, yeah. I'm guessing Jules, when they come, it must be, a, it'd be a very hard thing for them to actually come into the room but more importantly, they've got no hope, but that's why they're there. But then to hear your story, the lived experience, and then be around, you know, fellow people that have got similar stories, you know, you uplift each other, but you give them that hope that they can keep going. And that's why they put the work in. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I still remember the first time I walked into a bereavement group and it was one of those situations where I'd had to hard talk myself into <laughs> walking in the room. And it was life-changing because particularly, like I said, being 38, having my partner's suicide was so foreign to me. I thought I was the only person in the world going through that. And then to walk into a room and have somebody else go, I felt like that too. Again, we're pack animals. It's that validation and that welcoming and that community is so powerful. Um, it, it's virtually impossible to do it on your own. I'm sure some people do, but I don't know how. You really, you need to find your tribe and your community and and garner strength through, you know, that that combined voice. It's so powerful. Yeah, and, and so true. And 
you might find a community that might not be right for you, but don't give up. I think it's like, there's so many options here. If you want to do mindfulness, there's so many options. If you want to get fit, there's so many options. You may not like one, but I bet if you continue and push yourself, there'll be one out there for you. So Jules, let's talk about Life Connect. Um, how do we find you? How do we book in a workshop? What? Where can we go to get some more information? So if you Google Life Connect, oh, you'll come up that. with our website, <laughs> which has, because I, I, the email address is lifeconnect at nemionational.org.au. Uh, if you want to request a workshop, we do cover the um, Eastern Melbourne Primary Health Network catchment, which is sort of northeast of Melbourne out to the east. Um, but if you look at the website, that will give details. We do a nine-hour suicide awareness workshop, nine hours. It sounds like a lot, but there's a lot to cover. <laughs> um, it's free and we cover, we talk about stats. And it's interesting you brought up stats before I always, it always hurts my heart a little, even when I talk about numbers, because for every single one of those numbers, we need to remember that's a person that was loved and is missed. And um, just to remind ourselves of, of the real human um, side of those numbers. But we talk about, you know, some some cohorts that are highly represented in suicide numbers, such as you know, rural communities, um, Indigenous communities, LGBTQIA+, trans people, uh, service veterans. And so we put suicide in context and then we, we talk about the warning signs and the tipping points. We also add real um, scientific theories, theoretical perspectives of suicide in as well. So it's not just us talking about, because I can only talk about my experience. I can't talk about all suicides. So we do have the science in there as well. And we talk about those warning signs and tipping points and 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 keeping your eyes and ears open and getting all those puzzle pieces in place, how to have a conversation about suicide with somebody. And then when you ask the question and they say, yes, what the, sort of the next steps are to take, um, and it's really powerful because it is delivered with, delivered with that lived experience perspective. And the overwhelming feedback we get is that that really just is so powerful. And that's what keeps me getting out of bed every morning and doing what I do. It's just knowing that the real value in in my story, which, you know, like I said, I thought, oh, it's just my life. But I'm now I'm realising actually it's, it's more than that. So um, to be able to be a voice... For Steve, who no longer has a voice, um, it really keeps me going. And if I could prevent even one person going through what I went through, then every single tear was worth it. Yeah. Um, I do not recommend. <laughs> not no. the not a great experience. I couldn't. Well, I I don't want to uh, go through, but I couldn't imagine. Um, and I think you are making a difference and I absolutely love that. So on the show notes, episode number 321, I'll have links where you can reach out to Life Connect. And even if you're not in, you know, Eastern Melbourne, um, even if people do reach out, I'm sure, you know, you're well connected and, and they'll be able to point you in the right direction. So don't feel just by wherever your location is or if you're overseas, there are so many options out there now and keep searching for that. Now, Jules, before I let you go, is there anything that I've missed today that you think would be really important that, uh, you know, last sort of wisdom ball or ball of nugget that people might want to take away? Wow, that's a big one. <laughs> I'd really, <laughs> I'd really just like to say to people, 
that suicide is a perfectly normal human response to extraordinary circumstances. There would barely be a person alive that hasn't at some point in their life gone, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. That, by true definition, is suicidal thinking. You may have no plans, no intent, none of that, but that is a wish for things to end. So there would barely be a person alive that has not had that thought. So rather than demonising it and being scared of it, just acknowledge that it's it's actually a normal human phenomenon. And don't be frightened. Put yourself to the side for a moment. Have those conversations. Don't turn a blind eye. And you just never know what impact you could have on someone's life. Oh, very powerful. That's sort of like mic drops to finish off there, Jules. I absolutely love that. Um, and I must give a shout out as well. If you're after amazing concrete in Melbourne, uh, Podge, reach out to me. Uh, got the most amazing driveway, exposed ag, Jules, incredible. Very craftsman. It's, uh, I've got a bit of a fascination with uh, concrete and he, and he does a very good job of it. It's a, it's a skill and it's very enjoyable. So I thought I'd better give that little plug there, Jules. Hope you don't mind. No, I'm sure he'd love a plug. And and that's the other thing. I am happily repartnered, have an amazing, fulfilling life. And I'm so grateful. I think it's really taught me to be grateful for the tiniest things now. You know, when you've had really horrific things happen in your life, it gives you a real sense of gratitude when things are good. And And I also acknowledge that I put in a lot of bloody hard work to get there. And I am really proud of myself. So um, I've got the reward. I've got Melbourne's best concreter. <laughs> you sure to. Just ask him. He'll tell you. <laughs> I can vouch for that. I can vouch for that. But, um, and you should be very proud, Jules, because nothing in life comes easy, and particularly when you've got the back up against the wall like you did and the situation you're in. So, yes, any joy and happiness that you have now it's because you deserve it. You've put that effort in. So um, firstly, thank you so much for having the courage all those years ago to start sharing your story. And more importantly now for, you know, reaching out so many and and talking on platforms like this, because like you said, I, I we are getting better at talking about this and sharing our feelings and things like that. But there's still a long way to go. And the more conversations for people that have actually lived it and felt it and been through it and now come through the other side and, and it's in a really good place. I think that's a really yeah. important message to bring across as well. So um, as I said, again, if you want to reach out to Jules, I'll have links in episode number 321. Um, Jules, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and being brave enough to give a talk about suicide a platform. I really appreciate it. My pleasure.